This is lesson 29 in the study of the book of Romans. We've been on this for 29 weeks, believe it or not. Seems like only yesterday we started. We're in the middle of chapter 9, which means we only got 20-some weeks left. <laughs> See, but part of the problem with going through one of Paul's letters a few verses at a time each week is continuity. Remembering each week what was said before. And so today, before we move on, I just want to read from the beginning of chapter 1 again, or chapter 9 again, and get... Yeah, that would be a trip, wouldn't it? Chapter 1. <laughs> Chapter 9 again, and uh, so we can get a little continuity for the latter verses. It says, I speak the truth in Messiah. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Messiah for the sake of my own brothers, those of my race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Messiah, who is God over all, praised, forever praised. Amen. So again, he starts out this chapter, uh, these three chapters actually, on Israel, by saying, I'm not lying. I'm not lying. And the Holy Spirit confirms it. And he does it because he's not sure how these Romans are going to take his defense of the Jewish people, which is what he's going to do in the next three chapters. And so he adds credibility to his words by saying that he received it from the Holy Spirit. Now, to say something like this, if you didn't receive it from the Holy Spirit, is using God's name in vain. And believe me, Paul knows that. And so if he says he received it from the Holy Spirit, if he uses the Holy Spirit to fortify his words, you can be sure that this is the truth according to the Holy Spirit. And what is he saying? Well, again, if we look at chapter 8, he said this about the Roman Gentiles. He said... That they were adopted as sons. He told them that God foreknew them. That God predestined them. And that he called them. And that he justified them. And that those he justified, he glorified. Well, here starting in chapter 3 of this discourse. It's actually chapter 9, but it's the first of this discourse on the Jewish people. He begins with saying, the same is true of the Jewish people. God foreknew them. God predestined them. He called them. He glorified them. He's, and not only that, he tells us they're their human ancestry. He's telling these Romans that God loves the Jewish people just as he loves them. Only thing is, he loved them first. Because God's order is to the Jew first and then the Greek. Now why would he start this discourse with a statement like that? Well, we read a couple weeks before because these Romans are thinking highly of themselves. And we're told that they're boasting over the natural branches of the Jewish people. Now one has to keep in mind as he goes on that he's in the next few verses, he's speaking of Israel in the next few verses. 
The Jewish people, not the church and the Jews, as it's often been interpreted, but he's speaking of the Jewish people only. And he's doing this because Paul is actually addressing a wave of anti-Semitism that went through Rome in the 40s common era that saw that the Jewish people were actually expelled from Rome. Well, since 54 and the death of Claudius, the Jewish people, believers and non-believers alike, are returning to Rome only to find this wave of anti-Semitism was not limited to the Roman pagans, but also these congregations of Roman Gentiles that were left behind have been affected by it as well. And so he says this in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as the descendants. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. So what's Paul saying here? Paul's telling us that not everyone descended from Jacob, not every one of Jacob's ancestors are Israel. But it's always been the chosen of God who are Israel. Now again, this is all about Israel and the Jewish people. It's not about the church here. He's not talking about the church. He's talking about the Jewish people. And how does he prove that all Jewish people, that not all Jewish people are Israel, but the chosen are Israel? Well, as proof, he uses Abraham. Think about it. He has two sons, Ishmael, the firstborn, and Isaac. And it's Isaac who is the elect of God. It's Isaac who is the chosen of God. It's Isaac who receives the promises of God. Before these two were even born, he chose Isaac. Now he uses another example. In verse 10, he says, Not only this, but there was Rebekah also. And when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for through the twins, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so again, just as... Abraham has two sons. Isaac has two sons. And before they're ever born or ever do anything good or bad, God tells Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. Both are descendants of Isaac in the flesh, but only one receives the promises given to Isaac and to Abraham. The one who received the promises was the one who was chosen by God. He was chosen before they were even born. And so what is he saying? He's saying that one, it is the ones chosen by God. The sons of Abraham who received the promises was the one chosen by God. The one of the sons of Isaac, it was the one chosen by God. So, he's implying the same is true of the sons of Jacob. It's not ancestry, it's election. Or we can say the ones chosen by God. They're Israel. But you see, it's all about the sovereignty of God. 
And he's going to now continue to show that it is the sovereignty of God and nothing else. So that's the review. And again, if you've missed lessons 25 through 28, you need to get them. I hardly ever say this, but you need to get them if you're going to make sense of the rest of the book of Romans. Because these little reviews don't cut it. Right? Okay, so verse 14, we start off here. What shall we, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He says, if it's God's choice, and you can just hear the Romans, if it's not God's choice, and it's not what we do or don't do, but solely his election, and God makes his choice even before we're born, and have done nothing good or nothing bad, isn't God unjust? Isn't God's choosing before we're even born or done a thing, good or bad? Isn't that unfair? And wouldn't it be a failure to the promise of Jacob? Paul says to that, not at all. Not at all. And then he quotes the Exodus. Our reading for today, as a matter of fact. Doesn't that work out good? Where God tells Moses... He says this to the Jewish people, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. That quote comes, like I said, from our reading today, Exodus 33. But if we back up, to, back up a chapter in Exodus to the golden calf incident, we're going to learn something else about all of this. Right? And as we read this, remember the topic here to the Romans is, is God's promises. Now listen to what it says in 32 verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for the people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned quickly aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make you a great nation. Now, I don't know of those Jewish people who can, descend, who can trace back their ancestry, but those Jewish people who aren't descended from Moses, oh Moses, a great thank you for interceding because now he'll intercede on their behalf because apparently God knows that he can fulfill the promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob through the descendants of Moses alone. His promises can't fail. So if he's going to destroy the whole nations except for Moses, that means he can fulfill his promises through Moses alone. And what I'm trying to get you to see is God can have mercy on who he will. He owes no man a thing. He owns the sons of Jacob nothing. He has made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, but he can fulfill those promises through Moses alone. And so his judgment stands, his election stands, and just because he, he listens to Moses' plea and relents, it doesn't mean he couldn't have wiped out the rest of the Jewish people that day and kept his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob through Moses. 
God tells Moses, he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. This is very close in structure to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God says, I am who I am. And this verse would be more accurately understood as not as I am who I am, but I am or I am who or even what I will become. I am who I will become. I am who, what I will become. In other words, God doesn't have to ask permission. He doesn't have to seek anyone's guidance. He has no entanglements. He owes no one a thing. So there's no one who can tell him what not to do if he wills to do it. When God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, the same things apply. There's no one who can stop him. It's solely his choice. Not just that, but listen to what he says. I will have mercy. Not I will love, I will bless, I will call, I will choose. But he says, I will have mercy. Why would he say that? And more importantly, why would Paul use that phrase here? Well, he told us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, there is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God has mercy on whom he'll have mercy because every mother's son needs mercy. Right? And it's his choice. He doesn't have to give mercy. He's not obligated. It's solely his choice. And let me say this as well. If he doesn't show you mercy, you're going to have a real problem because you can't earn his mercy. Let me say, no one can stand before God either and point their finger at somebody else because he needs mercy the same way as the person he's pointing to. Not only does he have mercy on whom he'll have mercy, but listen to what he says next. In verse 16. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, that my name would be claimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So not only does he have mercy on whom he'll have mercy, but he hardens who he'll harden as well. And he uses Pharaoh as an example. And it doesn't depend on man's effort. You cannot say, I'm going to make God love me. I'm going to do this so that God will have mercy on me. I'm going to do this or that and God will owe me mercy. The same is true of the opposite of mercy. He hardens who he will harden. It's his choice. You know, I remember... 20 plus years ago or so, when I was first reading these passages about Pharaoh, trying to deal with these passages on Pharaoh's hardening, I noticed that there were actually three words used. The word most often used for hardening was hazak. You might remember from the end of reading a chapter, or reading, finishing a book of the Torah, it's always said, hazak, hazak, right? Be strong, be strong. It means to strengthen. All right? Then we have the word kabod, which means to honor. And then we have the word kasha, which means to be difficult. Anyway, when I had less faith, I wanted to make it say, I really wanted to make it say that Pharaoh himself 
did all the hardening. And I use these words to try and prove that. I wanted to take the burden for the hardening off God because it seemed to me unfair that God would harden someone's heart and not someone else's. That humanist in me wanted to make God conform to my idea of fairness. How many else have been there? Yeah? Well, what I found out the more I studied is that God doesn't conform to my idea of fairness. Nor does he conform to anyone else's idea of fairness. It's hard for us to understand, but God does not change. He's so far above our understanding of fairness and our understanding, period, that we often don't understand him. And we we just have to accept by faith that he's God, he's sovereign, he's good, he's merciful, and he does what's fair according to his standards of fairness. And his understanding of fair is not our understanding of fair. He knows, let me just let you in on a little secret. He knows a bit more than we've learned in our few years on this planet. Amen? You know, the more I studied this, the more I had to accept the fact, the more I had to come to the realization that, in fact, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Not just that, but Paul reminds us in this passage that not only did he harden Pharaoh's heart, but he tells us, and God tells us, that he raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose that he might display his power in Pharaoh, over Pharaoh, and that God's name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He hardened his heart so that he could show his might on earth. And not only that, he made them for that very purpose. In other words, the whole time, the whole time he was hardening his heart, he knew that he was going to end up at the bottom of the Red Sea. Now that goes against our humanistic idea of fairness, right? Right? Pharaoh could not have changed his mind if he wanted to. Not fair, right? Well, get used to it because God is sovereign and he doesn't conform to our idea of fair. He doesn't conform to our image. He's God. If we were to look at this hardening, it's much the same thought as we saw in chapter 1 of the book of Romans when he's speaking of the wickedness of mankind and he says this, In chapter 1, verse 24, he says, Therefore God gave them over to a sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. See, this hardening is God saying to Pharaoh, Okay, you deluded yourself enough to think you're God. And if you want to be God or a son of God, and you don't want to acknowledge me, that's okay, but let's see how powerful you are. And while we're at it, let's see how powerful the rest of your gods are. And so God leaves Egypt in ruins and Pharaoh at the bottom of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's own evil resolve that he is God and the one who is the God of Hebrews, who is the one, who is the God of the Hebrews that I should obey him. He strengthened that resolve over and over again. 
But the idea that God would raise a person up only to destroy that person does not fit into what we would like God to be. So much so that you often hear these people who are stuck in humanism say, I could never worship a God like that. Well, that may be. And they may be incensed. But that's who God is. And if you don't worship Him, and you don't worship Him for who He is, and not what you want him to want, want what you want him make him out to be, or who you fashion him to be, you'll be sitting next to Pharaoh in the kingdom. Of course, it'll be a different kingdom. Paul knows what is going to be going through the minds of these Romans, what they're going to be thinking. And what are they going to be thinking? The same thing we were just thinking. Huh. Well, that's not fair, right? And so he says this. Which one of you will say to me, why then does does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some pottery for common use? I love it because he uses this term pottery. I love it. We'll get to that in a minute. But he knows then why, they're thinking, why would you blame me if I do wrong? Or if I did not act according to his will? Why blame me? Well, the fact is, you do have a say. Pharaoh and his ancestors had a say. But they chose, not God, but they chose to elevate themselves to gods themselves, little g. Another thing, don't think that because God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he hardens everyone's heart. We do a good enough job of ourselves. Right? And so he says, who are you to question God? Who are you to say to your creator, why did you make me like this? And he uses the idea of a potter. And again, I like this. Because pottery is one that everyone had in Rome. You know, everybody had pottery in Rome. Everybody had pottery in Israel. Pottery was the thing of the day. You'd have pottery for water. Pottery for wine. Pottery for most every food purpose, storage purpose, was stored in pottery. Right? And then they had pottery for when they woke up in the middle of the night and had to relieve themselves. And the potter made both. But you don't want to mix them, do you? In the same way, the creator of the world has the right to make men as he chooses. Right? He's most certainly thinking of the words of Isaiah. Isaiah 29, verse 16. You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed to say say to him who formed it, he did not make me. What can, can the potter say of the potter? He knows nothing. Can the pot say of the potter? He knows nothing. We question God when we try to conform him to our idea of fairness. We're saying to the potter, why do you make pots for water in the morning and pots for water in the middle of the night? Let me say something again 
This does not mean that we didn't have a choice. But what it means is that God knows our choice even before we make it. Listen, folks, the fact is we don't even think like God. When we think, when I think, I go into my office and I, I'm thinking about a particular topic like the book of Romans and I think about it long enough for, for hours enough and what pops out? A commentary, right? Because I focused in on these verses of the book of Romans, put everything else out of my mind and focused on these and out comes a commentary or a sermon. Well, let me say something. God does not focus on things. He knows all things all the time. He does not have to put this out of his mind to focus on this like we do. He knows all things all of the time. And not just that, he knows all things past, present, and future all of the time. While you sit here and focus on fairness of this or that, God is not focused. He knows what you're thinking and what and everything everyone else is thinking all at the same time. And not just that, he knows what everyone's thinking past, present, and future all of the time. God is fair, but he's so fair that we can't comprehend his fairness because we can't contain all the information that he has all of the time. We're too busy focusing on this or that. He just doesn't take the information given to him by somebody, by so-and-so, and make a decision. But he knows every thought, every action, you and your entire ancestry before you did. And not only that, all of your ancestors from this time forward are going to do. He knows that all of the time. Doesn't have to focus on it, it's just there. And the only way you can describe it is God knows all of the time. Everything, all of the time. That's God. And again, the idea that God would raise up a person to destroy that person doesn't fit into our idea of God. Well, that may be. And these Romans may be incensed by that, but that's who God is. And that's the point that Paul is going to make. And the point he wants to make. He's setting these Gentiles up for chapter 11. And here's what he says in chapter 11. He says, If some of the branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in amongst the others, and now share in the nourishing sap of the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off so I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you. Provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And if they they do not persist in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, they were cut out of the olive tree. That is, they, they were, after all, you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature. On the contrary, to, uh, on, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree. How much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? 
I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in and then all Israel will be saved. You see how he's setting them up? He's seeing that all Israel has received a hardening in part. You're judging my brethren, the Jewish people, because of unbelief. But who are you to say that they will persist in that unbelief? Now, what did he say about Israel above? We covered it last week. Not all Israel is Israel. So if he's speaking about Israel here, and if they have received a hardening in part, and that hardening is only until the full number of Gentiles have come in, and then they're going to be saved... They're boasting over the natural branches. You're boasting over those who will be sitting at the table with the king in the messianic banquet. And so you better not be arrogant, but be afraid. Because if he can harden them after all the history he's had with them, who are you that he won't harden you? See, he's walking them down the garden path again. He does that all the time. He walks you down the garden path and then he lays it on you. When you understand this letter, you see what a masterful letter this is. Imagine yourself. You're sitting in Rome. You're sitting in the congregation, listening to the congregational leader read this letter. And Paul speaks of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, and you're sitting there thinking, how can God do something so unfair? How can he be the one who sends Pharaoh to his death? And how can he be the one who causes him to die? He causes him to do what he did and then kills him for it. How can God raise him up for this very reason? Help him reject God and then punish him for that very thing. And he did it so that he could show his might and take his people out of Egypt. And then he says, in a few sentences later, Israel has received a hardening in part by God. Why? Well, so that you could be grafted in. So don't boast. Don't be arrogant. Because this is the plan of God. And understand this as well. God is not done because he's going to save them. And he'll add later that just as Pharaoh was part of his plan of redemption, so too Are you part of his plan of redemption? What's different is, with Pharaoh, he showed his might. And with you, he wants to make Israel envious so that he can show his mercy. Implying, so, how are you doing at this? How are you doing at making Israel envious? Well, about as well as we've been doing In other words, consider the kindness of God to you and the sternness of God as well because he can show mercy or he can harden. It's all up to him. He's getting tough with these Romans, isn't he? But in a kind and gentle way, so to speak. You know, we've read this letter for thousands of years and because we haven't had one piece of information, the fact that there's a wave of anti-Semitism going through Rome... And he's calling this Gentile congregation on their anti-Semitism. We've totally missed the reason for the letter. 
And let me say this. They didn't miss it because they knew what they were doing. And so he tells them, God loves Israel. He foreknew them, he predestined them, he called them, and not just that, he loved them. Not only did he love them, but he loved them first. Right? Because he told them this in chapter 8. Listen to how he ends chapter 8. This is really good. He says this in 37. But all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything created will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. Do you get that? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Wouldn't you just be sitting there going, ooh, ooh, ooh. yeah, tell it like it is, Paul. Woohoo! Right? Well, if nothing can separate us from the love of God, nothing can separate the Jewish people from the love of God either. You see what he's saying? He loved them first. And if he unhardens their heart and they believe, he'll love them last as well. Because the first will be last and the last will be first. Right? He's telling them There is no if about it either. Because he just told us all Israel will be saved. Right? Can anything separate Israel from the love of God? See, he's drawing their attention to Deuteronomy. Let's go there. Chapter 7 and verse 7. It says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because... The Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord is, Lord your God is God and he is faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to thousands of generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. God hardened Pharaoh to keep his covenant of love to his people Israel. And how long does his love last? Well, Jeremiah told us that in chapter 31. He says this, verse 2, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel went when it Israel, when it went to find its rest, the Lord appeared to him afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. And again, I will build you, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin Israel. He's saying like, you Romans, God loves his people Israel as well. And the love is an everlasting love. He loves those who keep his commandments with an everlasting love. Did Israel keep his commandments? Well, he's going to say next. He's going to say, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it? Yeah, they kept his law. 
But he's going to tell us what they missed in chapter 10. So we'll pick up here next week. Amen?